The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you could go back in time, (coughs) excuse me, and ask a Union soldier what unit he belongs to, the chances are he would name his regiment, not his brigade or division or corps, but his regiment, the thousand-man unit he enlisted in and probably served with his whole military career. We know a lot about famous regiments, famous heroic regiments like the 20th Maine, the 24th Michigan, the Fighting 69th of New York. But some regiments had experiences that were less than heroic, not necessarily through any fault of their own. What was it like to serve in one of those units? Professor Leslie Gordon will share the answer with us tonight as we discuss her book, A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut's Civil War. That's our topic today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. But not speaking for the university, nor for the University of North Carolina system or the general administration or anybody else just for myself and likewise tonight's guest will do the same thing well it is a cold november wednesday night here in the year 2014 it is uh the 
151st anniversary today of the Gettysburg Address. Uh, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here this evening, but the Gettysburg Address continues to be a touchpoint of uh, America's history and identity. And we'll be talking uh, with some Lincoln people as we get into the new year around the time of Lincoln's birthday in uh, 2015 and the anniversary of his assassination in April. Uh, in fact, we've got a lot of good shows coming up. We'll jump ahead to those. Before we do that, we'll say it has been another tough week here in Greenville for the Pirates uh, on the football field, losing this week to Cincinnati. Looking forward to getting back on the winning track on Saturday. Um, we're all looking forward to Thanksgiving here as the semester moves into the, the possibly the hardest part. Uh, the weather's turning gray and the classes are mounting. This is true not just for faculty, as listeners already know because they hear me talk about it, but also for the students in classes like History 1050, some of whom are listening tonight for extra credit, waiting to hear the two secret words that will enable them to get credit for listening to the show by proving they were here. The first one of those uh, is Harvard, because it wouldn't be a complete show if I didn't remind listeners that I have a degree from Harvard University, so here's my chance to do that. Uh, there will be another secret word later. You'll need them both uh, to get the extra credit. I know you'll want to do that, but you'll want to stay in here, uh, tonight's guest, and guests in shows to come. Uh, for those looking forward, there will not be a live show next Wednesday night. It's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, but we'll be back on December 3rd. Our guest that night will be Nicole Etchison, author of A Generation at War, The Civil War in a Northern Community, and she's writing about a small town in Indiana, uh, the state where I lived before I came here. It'll be interesting to hear about that. On December 10th, Stephen Cushman has a brand new book, Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. And then we'll take the holiday break, uh, come back in January on the 14th with uh, Larry Babbitts, a former director here at ECU of the Maritime Studies Program. He has written and edited many books. His most recent uh, co-edited book is called From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. And then we've got Mark Crist on the 21st, Civil War, Arkansas, The Battle for a State. And uh, after that, the schedule is still in flux. But in February of 2015, we will definitely have David Reynolds, who has just edited a new annotated version of Lincoln's writings. It looks uh, very interesting. And by popular demand, after taking your comments, listeners, we will hear from the authors of a book on beards of the Civil War, badass beards of the Civil War. Uh, it's I, I've seen the book now. It's a slender volume. How we'll get an hour out of it will be an interesting challenge. Some of you have already sent in really thoughtful, interesting questions about beards in the Civil War, serious questions, and I'm, I'll be interested to see how our authors respond to those. Uh, but that's all in the future. You can follow that, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War auxiliary site run by Mark Gaffney. You can buy books there. Click on your book link on that site, and it links right through to Amazon and gives the website some pennies to keep the, uh, the, the bandwidth bill paid. 
There's also a donation button. Uh, you can contribute directly to Civil War Talk Radio, which I use exclusively uh, for whatever I want. It's not a charity. It's not a tax-deductible donation. Uh, so it's just out of the goodness of your heart. And thank you to all who have sent in contributions recently, which in many cases actually do go to buy books. Well, tonight we are talking about a brand new book uh, just hot off the Louisiana State University Press uh, book producing machine. The author is Leslie J. Gordon. The book is A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut's Civil War. Well, welcome back to the show. It is shocking to realize the last time we chatted here, it was 2005. Yes, I realized that the other day. It's been a long time. It, it does. At the time, I remember asking you, as we were discussing your work on uh, General Pickett, and at the end of the show, as often I will do, I asked him, so what, what's your next project? What are you working on? And you said, oh, I've got a little article, something on the 16th Connecticut, uh, should be out soon. <laughs> and <laughs> nine years later, uh, here it is. Yes, uh, it's been a long time coming. I'm very pleased to have this completed. Well, it looks really interesting. Uh, it is really interesting. I've read it, and, and uh, it, it looked interesting from the start, and it lives up to, to it. Uh, let me start with the premise that, that I raised in the introduction. We have lots of regimental histories, modern regimental histories, uh, written in the 20th century uh, as, as secondary sources about various regiments. The 20th Maine by John Pullen is probably the archetype of these from the 1950s, but what would move you to write or someone to read a book about a broken regiment, one that didn't perform heroically in every battle? Well, in some ways, I feel like I'm following a theme that began with George Pickett. I'm I'm more interested in the non-heroes. I'm more interested in people that didn't... Uh, didn't do well uh, in war and didn't live up to expectations. That, that's something that uh, has drawn me uh, ever since I began thinking about the Civil War. Uh, I feel like the attention's always been on, on the sort of, on the hero- heroism and, and courage, and, and not to say that that didn't occur. Absolutely it did. But I, I feel like, that, that generally speaking, uh, there is a celebratory narrative uh, that's that remains, and so what I began, uh, you know, when I wrote my book about Pickett, I was so intrigued by this idea that this this man really was a very troubled and, and complicated person, which to me made him more human. So when I I stumbled on the 16th Connecticut, I am from Connecticut. I don't have any family or anything that was in the unit, but uh, I wanted to do something northern, and I came across their story in Stephen Sears' book on uh, Antietam. And it just stayed with me that they had been in battle very briefly, I'm sorry, in uniform very briefly, and they rushed off to the front and they failed. And I just wondered what happened next, what, what more was there to say about them. And, and Sears just sort of, leave, I mean, he, he just leaves you there that they, that they broke and ran. And I wanted to follow their story. And so that, that was largely what opened it up for me. And I, I like the idea of writing about common soldiers. I like the idea of writing about it's sort of on-the-ground approach after writing about a, a Confederate general. 
So all those things came together for me. And I love regimental histories. I, I, I think that's the sort of nitty-gritty part of military history. But I wanted to do something different, certainly, not just recount what they did, where they went. I wanted to apply more analysis to it. Well, there, this is a timely book. I'm looking at the, the current number of the Journal of the Civil War era. The December 2014 volume just came out, and it's a special issue dedicated to coming to terms with Civil War military history. And it points out that military history is very popular with the public. Uh, if I assign in a Civil War class a, a book review and just let the students choose their own book without any guidance, a lot of them will choose military history, usually by a popular author, not by an academic author. And those of us who write military history in academia, uh, the, this issue points out, get the hairy eyeball when you go to a conference and <laughs> and, and talk about, I'm writing about a regiment. Uh, have you experienced that? It's funny you mention that because, you know, I just, I just had the chance today to actually read that piece and you know I edit Civil War history and we also have a special issue coming out on military history. This is the hot question. This is a very controversial question in the field about the place of military history. I was actually on a panel at Southern last year that was rather contentious. Uh, so you know I consider myself a military historian. I I think a lot about these large questions on culture and and and, and social concerns um, and gender. Uh, I suppose some people would not accept me as a as a, a true military historian. I, I don't know, but uh, I I wouldn't say that I I personally have had that kind of reaction amongst um, you know my colleagues or anything like that. But certainly there's this tension that I'm very aware of uh, with with the popular interest in the war and the kind of expectations I think that everyday people have that that want to read about the Civil War and what what they want to read about, right? They want to read about battles and they want to read about soldiers and they might not necessarily want to read about some of these larger questions and new ways of, of thinking about the war. But I'm one of these people that just think, I, th I truly do think there's room for all of it. And I don't feel like we have to pick and choose and say, well, you can't do that. <laughs> I think that we need all of it to understand this event. And my own work, I'm not trying in any way to say that for example, this unit speaks for all the experiences. I just think it's, that they are voices that have not been heard, uh, that they gain us some new insight to put alongside these other uh, stories that we've been hearing. I feel much more, you know, we've, we, ha we do know much more about these famed regiments and the ones that were, were at, at the forefront, you know, were at Gettysburg, were at Vicksburg, um, were accumulating the accolades. The, there were regiments like the 16th that weren't, and they were, frankly, uh, I don't know if jealous is the right word, but they wanted that, and they strove for They really strived for it. And I argue in my book that they tried to make their own story fit that kind of narrative. Well, there, there's... I'm struck by a lot of things uh, that you point out there. First, a quick question. Did Civil War History, the journal send a questionnaire to people about military history recently? Right. So, was that, was uh, that you guys? Or, I, I, I couldn't find anything about it in the Civil War era article, and then I thought well, that's, maybe yeah. it was you guys. Right, it's my journal that okay. I edit. So Earl Hess, and ours is about to that's come out. Right. It's not yet out. It's any day, you know. 
Okay. Um, we're just a, a week or two behind um, the Journal of the Civil War era. Um, but, uh, yes, um, I invited Earl Hess uh, to write a piece for us. I mm-hmm. very much wanted to take on this, this point. I've, I've been, uh, again, aware of it. And um, we devoted this issue to, to that question and to that point that perhaps there, we need to, to talk about it openly. And so he took it in, you know, he took it and ran with it, and he came up with the questionnaire, and he came up with his definitions. And this is very much his position. I don't agree mm-hmm. with everything he says, but right. I'm hoping it opens up the dialogue. Um, you know, because Earl does think that there's something wrong, that something's going on right now in the field, um, that there's a loss. And so he talks quite a bit about that in his, uh, in his piece. Well, I will look forward to reading it. I, I answered the questionnaire, and I did get that sense. I mean, he, he his work is, I think we could safely say, more traditional military history. Uh, but I would agree with you that there's room for all of this. And, mm-hmm. and you think back to seminal books like uh, uh, Gerald Linderman, uh, Embattled Courage from you know, 30, 40 years ago. That's a book that, that works at every level, the, the military historians, military history buffs, academics, uh, uh, you know, all responded well to that. Uh, it, it, and I think we don't give credit necessarily to the full military history audience uh, when people say, oh, they just want to read about battles. Uh, a good, insightful, analytical book about battles or regiments, as in your case, I think is going to find a big audience. Uh, I, I agree with you completely, and I have... I mean, when I uh, have talked to groups about my work on the 16th, and I I have shared with them the findings of you know the the, the trials and tribulations of this unit, and, and I, I I have found you know groups to be very open to it, very interested in it, and uh, exactly I I think that there's just great curiosity, real curiosity, of course, about this era, about the people at the time. And so I think, you know, as historians, this is wonderful. I think there's so much creativity and vibrancy in our field right now with all kinds of new, uh, new approaches. And I, as I said, I really welcome it. So I think it's a great time for us. And it's really, I'm not as concerned, I guess, as some <laughs> folks seem to be that something's wrong. I, I, think, it's, I think it's good. I think we're, we're doing fine. Well, I, I, I'm with you there. There's, uh, you know, there's no shortage of, uh, topics to talk about on, on this program, yeah, right. new books coming out, uh, always interesting things each week. Uh, another tangent uh, that the Civil War era article mentions is the interest in, uh, we'll call it the dark history of the Civil War. People are writing books about atrocities and guerrilla warfare. And in a sense, your book about a loser regiment instead of a winner regiment uh, fits into that mode. I'm going to suspend our audience on the the brink of waiting to hear your answer and say we have to take a short break right now. So that's what we're going to do. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking with Leslie J. Gordon. She's the author of A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut's Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Leslie J. Gordon. She is professor of history at the University of Akron and the author of A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut's Civil War. We talked in our first segment a little bit about the state of military history and where a book like this fits in, and uh, a regimental history, a very traditional form, but of a regiment that suffered uh, in its military experience in a way that some more heroic ones didn't. Honestly, just to give the audience a, a sense of what happened, Tell us a little bit about specifically what the regiment went through at Antietam, its first battle. Yes, so they are created in the summer of 1862, and they leave Hartford. They're from Hartford County. They leave uh, the state at the end of August, and they go off and fight at Antietam, which, of course, is September 17th, and uh, and it is a debacle for them, and it's and it's. Largely, and in no way am I saying that, you know, when I talk about what, what went wrong, it's pretty clear that they, they're not really to blame. They just were in a, a you know, a bad place at, the, at a bad time. They're, it's late in the afternoon and they're caught uh, withstanding the bulk of Hill's attack, uh, the Confederate attack, uh, the, the below uh, Burnside's Bridge. And, but they're, their greenness, their uh, inexperience really comes through. They have no idea how, what to do. They don't understand what's being yelled at them, the orders being screamed at them. They can't really see. They're in a very high, the corn is very high, and they panic, and, and they do flee. And when they break, they also lead to the panic of another unit, the fourth uh, 
Rhode Island and also another Connecticut unit. And uh, what also happens in the aftermath uh, is that pretty much the unit never completely recovers its numbers. They suffer about 25% casualties from Antietam. That's every, you know, dead, wounded, missing. But then there's just a steady stream. There's resignations. There, there's going to be, of course, sickness. Some of the men that are wounded will never come back. Some of them uh, try to come back and, and are just uh, unfit for duty. And, and they just seem to be, as I you know, use this word broken, I use it for a number of reasons, and, but that's the term that it is actually a quote from a from what this Rhode Island officer who's, who is recounting what happened uh, with his own unit, and he refers to the 16th Connecticut as a broken regiment. And they just never get those, they, they're just never full strength again, and this just seems to be a mortal blow to them, you know, with their morale in many ways, too. And they won't ever be in a large-scale battle. I mean, they're going to be at the Battle of Plymouth, which where they're going to be... Uh, captured and sent to Andersonville. But that's, even that kind of battle, it's rather marginal, I think most people would agree, in the, in the scheme of things for the wars, uh, you know, as a decisive battle. So this is really it for them, Antietam, and that, that's it. Most, it's not, I'm not saying, you know, most regiments, their first battle it's it's not as though you know a, a green unit is going to perform well across the board. It's not unusual, right? But they never get another chance to sort of show that they've gained from experience. They they fight at 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 Suffolk, which is more of a, sort of a skirmishing, and they're proud of themselves for that that they can stand up and and show themselves. But again, that's sort of anticlimactic compared to Antietam. So they got. They got one shot at glory, and it wasn't to be theirs. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it, and I and I think it's so interesting. The 14th Connecticut, which was raised at the same time from the same place, the same county in Hartford, or Hartford County, uh, they leave the state about the same time, and they're in Antietam as well, and they do well, and then they're going to continue on with the Army of the Potomac. The 16th will be uh, removed. Uh, they will end up in garrison duty. And then, of course, at Plymouth, the 14th will continue onto Gettysburg, onto the uh, Virginia campaign, and so on. They'll be at Chancellorsville, and they will have all these battlefield honors. And the, and I found evidence, you know, of men in the ranks of the. At least, there's this great letter to one of the New, Hereford newspapers by a member of the unit, just saying, essentially, you know, here we are doing the real fighting, and we're not getting attention <laughs> for it. Um, and I, I think that that's very telling. The 16th Connecticut, interestingly, had a lot of connections to the Hartford Press, so they did get a lot of coverage in the newspaper. But their their experience, their service, wasn't the again the conventional service. The 14th Connecticut was, and the 14th Connecticut is more what you you know I think most people think of as the Civil War experience. And fighting in all the major battles. The right. point about newspapers is interesting because uh, you note that right after Antietam, the first newspaper reports uh, about the 16th at Antietam described their heroism and, and how well they did when, in fact, they, they panicked and ran away. Right. But that brought up it brings up a couple things. One is the, the unreliability of contemporary newspapers as sources of information for what's going on. Uh, reporters have no idea often, and uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to have changed entirely in, in the <laughs> modern era. But it brings up another point about sources, which is the regimental history. 
as a, a, a genre, by which I mean the, the, the ones written by the members of the regiment. In the 19th century, you know, I'm sure listeners have read some of these uh, at one time or another. It was not uncommon for the veterans to write at some point, 10, 20, 30 years later, a history of their own regiment, publish limited copies for the members and their families. And for years, these were treated as you know useful primary sources. I used a lot of them when I wrote about the Army of the Ohio. And you pointed out in your introduction that somewhere in the last 20 years, historians turned on them and said, these are poison. We can't mm-hmm. use these sources anymore. Right. Uh, why did they do that? And why are you reviving? Why do you think they are valuable? Well, as you said, most historians view them as that they're just, they're, 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 they were written by these men years after, and they're uncritical. That uh, they, they don't contain anything, as you said, reliable. Uh, they're just based on um, sort of uh, tainted memories of the men, you know, with a sort of an agenda to celebrate their own experiences. And so they can't be trusted, this kind of idea that they can't be trusted. But even like you said with the newspapers, sure, that, that they're either going to be unreliable or, they're again, they're trying to promote an image, which is something that, see, that, that really intrigues me and that I, I don't discount any of these sources because of that, because I, I'm interested in that image. I'm interested in that story that is out there and, and trying to be, you know, that, that's trying to gain traction. And so I tried to look at all those different and sometimes times competing versions, particularly Antietam was a great way to, I could, I could sort of line them up and I do that in that chapter in Antietam, uh, and I saw, it seemed to me, a process where within, and I could find within the, the letters, the private letters, of course, the unpublished letters, the, the men writing home, and even in their diaries, the things that they were saying, and then the things that were being published in the newspapers, because a lot of these newspapers would publish private letters, uh, you know, from soldiers. And, and then as I tracked it through time, so at first, like you said, it seemed to be, oh, they did fine in battle. And then it started to seep through that they didn't do so well. Um, and, but then as time went on and through the war and then after the war, it was united. The, the picture, the, the portrait became much more flattened. And any question about the bravery of the men or that they, anything had really gone wrong, except to say that, yes, they had been inexperienced. They uh, perhaps, sure, there, there had been high losses but that in the end they had performed nobly. That became the consistent message. And so that's the kind of thing that, you know, if you, if you read often the veterans' accounts themselves, you would find that kind of uh, just, again, almost two-dimensional account of their service. But what I found with the 16th is it seemed to me much more nuanced and complicated when even in some of the post-war writings, uh, some of these individuals that were collecting and recounting and talking openly and publicly about it. And that so intrigued me that, you know, maybe we haven't been fair in just dismissing that the post-war, there was this, particularly with Northern soldiers, that there's been so much good work done on Southern veterans in the post-war and the lost cause. But in the North, that there was, there was contested uh, memory, Right, and how to think about the war amongst Northerners. I found with this regiment, they were arguing with each other about how to remember their own service with each other. And that, I think, is another part of the story we haven't been aware of. 
Yeah, it, it is. As you say, it's much more complex. Uh, not not a single line of memory. Of course, people literally would have experienced different things on the day of battle, but they also mm-hmm. would choose to remember them, or or it chooses to to intentional. Uh, uh, they would come to remember them differently for for one reason or another. Uh, it is worth stressing. It seems to me. I, I was just struck by how incredibly inexperienced these men were. You point out that the regiment is only raised in the middle of the summer and they're fighting in September. And some of the accounts you cite say they've they've never had any meaningful drill. They they haven't learned how to march in a straight line or how to load their weapons yet. Mm-hmm. And I I sit here on the Brewster building across 10th Street from where the marching band practices at, at East Carolina. And they've been out there, you know, two a days in the summer, and then every uh, day after class since then. And they're just working like crazy, so that on Saturday they can march for you know 20 minutes in front of a large crowd in straight lines. Mm-hmm. And it, it took all that drill for them to get good, and they are good. Uh, the 16th Connecticut didn't have that. The, the first day the the band tries to march in a straight line, uh, they've never done it before. They're not going to succeed, and they're not getting shot at. Uh, right. it, it's amazing to me that, that more regiments, well, well, I guess not so many green regiments went to war quite the way the 16th did, literally thrown into battle with no training. Uh, but it's not a surprise to me that they ran away. Well, no, I agree with you. And there seems to be a question, and I, I found some um, conflicting accounts, but uh, their regimental historian, Bernard Blakesley, he... There, they, there's a question about when they actually received their guns and if they knew how to shoot them. So that's a pretty big, that, that's a concern. There was actually a letter sent to one of the Hereford newspapers on that very point saying that, you know, these men don't know how to fire their guns, right? So exactly, uh, there, there really was something wrong here. And then in the post-war, one of the local histories published about Hartford County and about the regiments, it, it refers to them as a sort of this pack of, of, you know, boys, I can't remember the exact expression, but it says no, no drill, no discipline. That, again, that they just, they were like a mob. They just had no idea what they were doing. And, and the men too, they talk about, you know, I have some of their letters and diaries. They talk about waiting uh, through the day, uh, for the day before the battle and the day of the battle in the morning, they, for a long time, well, for quite a while, they were convinced they were not going to be fighting. They were shocked that they were even going into battle, uh, in, given the conditions of the fact that they had been in uniform so briefly. So absolutely, uh, one of the soldiers, Robert Kellogg, wrote his father and, and called it murder because they were so ill-equipped. Now, one of the quirky things that you point out after the battle, they they stay in the Army of the Potomac for a while. They're at Fredericksburg, but they're not in in combat there. And they get sent down to Virginia, away from the front lines at at Newport News and at at Suffolk. And they they engage in some minor skirmishing there. Uh, One of the odd things that happens is there seems to be a constant question if they actually are in the Army at all. Right. what was but, that about? There seems to be this, you know, they, they start to get this impression of themselves that they're, they're being mistreated, that they have been singled out. 
Uh, and I think this, of course, starts, obviously, in the aftermath of Antietam, that, that somehow someone is to blame for what went wrong. And the other thing I stress in that book, of course, is the high expectations put on them because they are from Hartford County. And, you know, Hartford being the, you know, the capital and the, and they come a lot, they represent some of the best families of the state and on and on. But yes, that they, they, first of all, the, I think the first key to this is they don't get their, they don't get, they're not getting paid. So months go by and they're not receiving their paycheck. And they begin to believe that there's some kind of conspiracy that they've been, again, forgotten and overlooked. And this leads to this question that perhaps they never were formally mustered into the army because there seems to be this connection in their minds that they're not being paid because the paperwork, right, on them being in the army never was officially completed. And there are some of them that say, well, that's fine. I'll just go home. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Uh, and it all, of course, gets resolved, but it's, it's quite fascinating, uh, of course, to me, too, that they talk this way and openly and, and, and rather uh, boldly that they won't, they won't stand this and they're just, they're just going to march home and they don't care what the governor says and on and on. But again, all this is going to vanish in the post-war. I mean, they're not going to mention any of this. They're not going to talk about how they, if they don't get paid, they're going to go home, right? They're going to talk about that they were proud to serve and that they, you know, were proud of being in the 16th and fighting for the state of Connecticut. I mean, of course, it's all gone. So these kind of details to me, I think they matter. I think it's important. And, you know, getting back when you were earlier talking about this sort of dark history and all, you know, to me, I didn't go into this project thinking, oh, I want to write about a unit because all the bad things happened to them. I mean, it did intrigue me that they didn't fit, again, this seemed to me the, the traditional story, but I followed the sources, right? And I found all this. I found it. And, and this, this, these were in the diaries. These were in the letters. This is not me with my own sort of impression, you know, that I was putting on them. You can find it in their, in their, in their words. And, and I had never come across anything quite like that. Well, it is a, a fascinating story. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, I want to ask you uh, about the battle at Plymouth, North Carolina, not too far from here in Greenville, uh, where the regiment gets captured whole and sent to Andersonville and, and figure how we can fit that into uh, a heroic narrative Uh And we'll also come back with the rest of the secret word for those of you in History 1050. We'll do all that when we return with Leslie J. Gordon. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Leslie J. Gordon, author of A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut's Civil War. We've been talking about the regiment's experience at Antietam as an untrained, raw regiment thrown into battle. Uh, It's the next uh, and and second and only other major engagement, and not even that major, I suppose, is at uh, Plymouth in April 1864, Plymouth, North Carolina. And... uh, in honor of the 16th Connecticut, uh, the secret word for those of you in history, 1050, is skedaddle. Uh, look it up. Uh, bring the definition with you on Friday to class, and you'll get credit for listening to the show. Um, skedaddle uh, works with our, our regiment tonight, uh, mostly. At what they do at Plymouth, of course, is actually surrender. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plymouth is, is, again, not very far from here. I was at a reenactment there uh, last June and mm-hmm. met two people who ended up being on the show, interesting, uh, connected with the reenactment community. And uh, it, it's still in the middle of nowhere, uh, Plymouth, mm-hmm. North Carolina. Uh, it, it's really a remote, rural place. And... I can understand the 16th Connecticut feeling that after serving in Southside Virginia, which at least has something going for it, now they're now they're out in in nowhere's land, while other regiments are getting the glory at Gettysburg or Chancellorsville. They've got nothing to do there, and then they get attacked right. uh, by a much larger force, and they end up uh, surrendering. So, well. This leads to a couple things. How do they deal with that, I guess? Let's start with that. Right. I and mean, just to back up, uh, before they're sent to Plymouth, they, <laughs> when they're at uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, they are so comfortable there. They, they build these wonderful uh, cabins, uh, winter cabins, that they, they talk about how how snug they are, and, and one of their members says it's a perfect village, and it sort of reminds him of New England, and some of their wives are visiting, and, and they can get, it seems, anything they could ever want. I mean, it doesn't seem like soldiering at all. One of them even says that. Uh, and when they're ordered to go to Plymouth, they're so angry about it, they burn their camp down, which 
was quite remarkable. And several of the officers are arrested and court-martialed. Um, and, you know, this just shows, again, they, this regiment, I mean, they they have this sort of push and pull about being soldiers, you know, that, that they're still, they're feeling this this autonomy that they're, you know, they're not just going to be pushed around, but at the same time, of course, they are soldiers. They have to go wherever they're told told to go. Uh, but so they go to Plymouth, and yet they feel that it is the end, edge of the world, and that they're being forgotten. They're also angry. There's, I talk quite about a, a bit about this in the book too. They're, they feel that the people at home, the men who aren't serving, uh, uh, are are just as bad as the Confederates, right? That they that they are are disloyal. They talk a lot about copperheads, and they and they also think the war is about too much about money. So they've got a lot to say. They have a lot to say. They complain quite a bit, and it seems to to me to underscore the sense that they feel you know they are sacrificing. They're out there, and again you know from our perspective, and and you can compare them to what if you take the 14th and what's the 14th up to and. By 64, you know, they're about to go into the hard campaigning of, of the summer of 64, certainly, um, which is going to be pretty bleak. But, uh, and they've just gone through, again, going back to Gettysburg and everything. But that, the 16th doesn't have that, that perspective. They just only see what they're dealing with, and, and they're pretty much uh, miserable about it. But Plymouth, um, Plymouth does seem to be the edge of the world. They don't think they're going to be attacked. There's some rumors they're going to be attacked, and then, of course, they are. And it's a three-day siege, and they're surrounded and overwhelmed. And they finally, the entire uh, outpost is, is, you know, it, they surrender. Uh, uh, Henry Wessel uh, surrenders to the Confederates. And so, yes, the uh, 16th isn't, of course, the only regiment that's captured. But, mm-hmm. uh, again, compared to the rest of their experience, this just seems completely devastating to them. Uh, well, I mean, it is to all of them. I, again, I don't mean to say that it's not to any of these men that are going to end up at Andersonville, but they, uh, it's a shock. It's a complete shock. Well, and, and then that's the key, that if you're, if you're a hard luck regiment, you're saying, well, you're going to have bad luck in this battle and that battle. You start mm-hmm. saying, well, what worst thing can happen? And there's your answer. Now you're going to Andersonville. <laughs> right. The worst prison in American history, uh, by some uh, by some views, and certainly a terrible one by any view. Uh, so, how how do they endure that? What what was life like for the men of the 16th in Andersonville? Yes, I, I really wanted to try to get a handle on how they compared uh, to generally to the experience, and I think in in, in many ways it wasn't that different. I mean, they're going to suffer and die. Uh, you know, they due to the the horrible conditions, and they're going to be uh, really scarred. Many of the survivors by the experience. I mean, I don't think that that really stands out. I mean, this, like I said, Andersonville is just horrid. But what intrigued me too was, you know, they talk quite a bit. The survivors or the diaries that I have, um, they talk quite a bit about their awareness of each other in the camp. You know, this sort of regimental identity. Um, they, they're aware of who is who dies and when they die. And a few of them want to keep special tabs. Robert Kellogg kept uh, a, a death list that he carefully, you know, transcribed in his diary. And he wanted to be sure when, when he finally got home that uh, the newspapers had it. And he wrote an account of Andersonville, one of the very first that was published. 
Uh, and also, but I found at the same time as a strong regimental sense of identity and, and connection, there, there's, there are also uh, strains. Because despite the fact that after the war, and even people like Kellogg are going to claim that nobody in the regiment uh, took paroles, which meant you could get out of the prison, you could get better food, you could, um, you could just escape that horrible pen and the conditions and, and help the Confederates. Uh, you had to swear an allegiance to the Confederacy. Um, Kellogg said nobody did this. I found evidence that several members of the regiment did. And so that is, you know, that again is going to be completely gone from the post-war record, from the public uh, descriptions of the unit. And I found that really intriguing. It was interesting that that some of the soldiers, in their memories post-war, not only remembered that some of their comrades did this, but didn't blame them for it either. Yeah, so I found, yeah, right, so in the, like you're saying, in the private, in sort of more private, right, 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 like in some of the diaries or some of the, some of the accounts that seem to be meant for family members, they talk about it in a very personal way, that's right, and that's fascinating, they say that, you know, I, I am alive today because this comrade of mine accepted a parole and went outside and got me food, got me clothing, you know, protected me. And so it became this sheer question of survival. So you had those relationships that uh, they're very, very much still about the regiment in many ways, right? Because they're the relationships based on the regiment, but they're not about this larger unity, you know, in the face of adversity question that the regiment stayed true to the union against the Confederacy. So it's a different level, a different kind of complexity and, also, somebody like Oliver Gates, he talked in his diary, he says on the very last page that he was somebody that condemned his comrades for accepting the parole, but then he took it himself because he knew this was the only way he would live through prison. And again, that striking honesty I found really, uh, really remarkable and um, and, and, and worth noting that, that these, these men, that they were within themselves really struggling with the larger ideals, you know, why they were fighting, what they were fighting for, and what they were supposed to do with this prison experience. It didn't match, of course, anything that they could have seen coming. And it certainly didn't match anything that they had experienced going into, uh, into the, that prison environment. And some of them decided this is what they had to do to live, to, to make it back home again. The the war does come to an end, and they they do get to go back home. Although even here, you describe you know, steamboat accidents and uh, paperwork delays, and it's one thing after another, and and, and it's it, you're just cheering for these guys to please let them get back to their homes and families. Uh, the, the the few survivors get back. How many survived from the initial? thousand give or take uh, who enlisted you know these numbers are, are hard to to pinpoint because i i i looked a lot ira forbes who uh went through the prison experience and he kept quite a few records and numbers um he's the one i think i had some of the best numbers when i could tell as far as who died in prison um you know that i think the numbers are they're close to like 90 i want to say that died in prison uh <laughs> You know, 
it's there. I, I guess I can't say I can't say offhand without having to look it up, like uh, across the board, how many the survivors. This is really a mm-hmm. uh, uh, memorable moment when they're uh, having their mustering out ceremony uh, in the streets of Hartford. That only 130 of them marched down the street. So if you, mm. you think now there were more of them, of course, that survived than the right. 130 out of the 1,000 plus. But the fact that the 100, just just 100, that's a tiny, you know, that's a skeleton of them uh, that ended up ended up home. Um, but they, yeah, the the you know, and the, of course the question is. How, you're going to have so many that, that were lost at Antietam, so many that ended up dying from disease, and then, of course, in prison. But then the thing that's so hard to track as well is that how many of them are going to end up dying from in, in the aftermath of the war, right, from, particularly from Andersonville. I, don't, I just don't know. But, but clearly, uh, the, the losses are on a very large scale. Mm-hmm. I was intrigued uh, by the, the idea that uh, the story of the, the regiment's flag and, mm-hmm. and regiments, of course, you know, protected their flag at all costs. That was the the, the totem, the sacred uh, emblem and, uh, of the unit. That uh, at Plymouth, they build a sort of post-war myth that they saved their flag by. Well, how how did they save their flag? Well. This story, I originally did not think was true. In fact, I even uh, talk about it in print at one point and did not think, you know, I discounted it, but I've come to believe that it's true. Um, (laughs) This is one of the problems in writing on this unit uh, and and going through all all these varying versions of events. But uh, the the story is that uh, when it became clear that they were going to be captured at Plymouth. Their lieutenant colonel, John Burnham, ordered the color guard to uh, gather up the flags and tear them uh, into shreds. And, and some of them were just destroyed. I mean, there's some accounts that they, that they burned some of them and just buried them. But that many of them, they, they actually, the men, they dispersed them amongst themselves, just took shreds of them and, and just hid them in their uniforms. And then that, that many of these men, you know, kept those shreds with them and went into the, you know, into Andersonville and into other prisons and kept them and kept them and kept them into the post-war. And then after, a few, a little bit after, uh, they, in a reunion, brought those shreds back and then they created a new flag. And the new flag is white with a blue center. And the blue center is made of all those shreds, and the, that flag is, you can see it, it's at the Capitol today, the Connecticut State Capitol, and, uh, and I was doubting the story a little bit, because there had been some questions about, well, wh- what happened to the flag, because some Confederates had come forward in the post-war and claimed that they actually had the 16th Connecticut's flags, and then I thought it was striking that neither uh, Ira Forbes, who was um, color. Uh, you know, he he was part of the color guard, and that uh, Robert Kellogg, who wrote so much and said so much, never mentioned this story. I thought, well, that's odd. Why wouldn't they talk about it? But then one day I was at the uh, state archives going through some papers, and a piece of the flag was in one of it. It fell, like, on my lap, literally. <laughs> and I realized, I thought, you know, this is, a true, this is a true story. And I found more and more of them talking about it and talking about it. So I've come to believe that absolutely it, it's a true story. And it it's it's really something, and it does speak to me. I think of that um, sense of of wanting to 
to stay connected again to to the regiment and to and uh, you know I think it works well again with this idea of, of of wanting to have something whole of taking these pieces right of experience and 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 having something that made sense so a cohesive again you know narrative that made sense to them and I really think that flag is symbolic of that and it, well, that- and it right it, it, that works. I, th- I think that's a marvelous metaphor for, for the regiment and for its post-war experience. And uh, this, this is where, unfortunately, we'll have to leave the 16th Connecticut uh, as we are out of time. But listeners will be able to read the whole story. The book is A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut Civil War from Louisiana State University Press. It's a very handsome book uh, and a, a really interesting story. It it. it it, it grabs you because you don't read, uh, uh, as we've said many times here, about the, the regiments on the short end of the stick, the way we do about the, the heroes. And it, it's, it's just a, a really fascinating uh, piece of work. Leslie, thank you so much for sharing it with us tonight. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.